The New Testament reading is from the book of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning as, as we continue through the Gospel of, of Matthew. And before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for your, for your word, your scripture. Thank you for the truths you give to us. Thank you for the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And, and I do pray that all that follows would be faithful to your intention to this text, Lord, and that you would apply the truths of this text to our lives, to all the many areas of our lives. For we are your church, those called and collected and crafted by your promise that you have fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and the power and the efficacy of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today we continue through Christ's Olivet Discourse. And, and this is Christ's private instruction to, a to his disciples on the Mount of Olivet. And these are also Christ's special words for the church, for the church during this present age, between the time of Christ's ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and between the time of Christ's return, for which we wait. 
And I want to look at this passage under three headings. Three headings. Wonder, waiting, and wedding. Wonder, waiting, and wedding. I should also note, I think this is the first time I've ever done a three-point alliterative sermon. Um, Finally, and I know by some criteria, this might make this actually my first official um, sermon. Um, so, but in all seriousness, let's, um, let's dig into it because there's many, many important truths for the church here. And again, I want to start with, I want to start with wonder. And I want to speak specifically here about the wonder of Jesus Christ, about who he is and what that means for us. Because at the very beginning of this text, we encounter the following words. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. We have to ask ourselves, what is going on here? What does it mean that the Father knows something that the Son doesn't know? And at the very least, all of us need to step back and say, this is a very, very difficult text. And to get it right, we're going to have to push into the doctrine of of Christ, what is called Christology. And that means something else, because maybe you've heard people say, well, I, I don't need theology, I just need the Bible. Just give me the Bible. But here, you're going to have to make a theological decision. How is it that the Son is said to not know the day or the hour of his second coming, but that the Father does? You're always doing theology, but explicitly you're going to have to do theology here. There's no way around it. So bear with me for a bit during this first point of the sermon, this point of wonder, as we work through this riddle of who Christ is, because we have to get this right if we're going to understand what Christ is saying here. And I do promise you this will put us in a much better place for understanding the rest of the passage. Again, Christ tells us, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so, Maybe our first impulse is is to say that the Son is is lesser than, that he's inferior to, that that in some way he's subordinate to the Father in some primary or or essential way. Maybe we think there's a kind of of hierarchy within the Trinity, and the Father, by, by nature of who the Father is, knows something that the Son doesn't know. And so... Christ occupies a special kind of middle position. He's lower than than God, God the Father, but he's higher than the rest of creation. But if you say that God the Son is God, but he's lesser than God the Father, then what you ultimately have there is a form of, of polytheism. You have more than one God. God the Son and God the Father no longer become one God. However, if you say Christ is a, is a special kind of creature, that he's, he's lower than God, but he's the very highest kind of creature, the greatest creature ever created, well, then we have the heresy of, of Arianism, and, and we don't want to embrace either of these positions. But maybe then we want to take a different response. 
We want to sort of split the difference. Maybe the son, because of the incarnation, because he has become human, maybe he's a kind of mixture of God and humanity. Maybe he becomes a kind of, of human divine hybrid. Yellow and orange, oh sorry, yellow and red make orange when they're mixed together. And maybe we think that when you mix together humanity and, and, and divinity, well, you get Christ. But at that point, Christ is neither truly human nor truly God. He's, he's somewhere in between. And if we make this move, we have another heresy, the heresy of Eutychianism. We look to a Savior who is not both God and man, but a Savior who is neither God nor man. So then, what is going on here when Christ says the Son knows not the day or the hour of his second coming? We actually see something that we find quite a bit in Scripture. This is a larger dynamic we see throughout the Bible. For instance, how is it that we're supposed to understand these seemingly contradictory sayings of Christ that we find in the Gospel of John? In that Gospel, at one point Christ says, before Abraham was, I am. And at another point in that Gospel, Christ says, the Father is greater than I. St. Augustine is, is helpful here, as are many people from the early church in, in untangling this riddle. And the first thing that Augustine does is, is he uses Scripture to interpret Scripture, which has always been a very important principle for the church. Augustine looks to Philippians 2, where, where Paul tells us that Christ, being in the form of God, he humbled himself by taking upon himself the form of a servant. And Augustine reads these two forms as two natures. The form of God, it, it speaks of Christ's divine nature. The form of a servant, it speaks of Christ's human nature. But it's the same person, the divine person of the Son, the one divine person of Christ. He possesses both the divine nature and a human nature. And so when Christ says, before Abraham was, I am, he's speaking of his being eternal, and he's speaking as the Son, according to the form of God, his human nature. He's speaking as God. But when Christ says, the Father is greater than I, he's speaking according to the form of a servant, according to his humanity. Christ is speaking as a human. And this gives us the criteria that we need in understanding and interpreting today's passage. When Christ says he knows neither the day or the hour, he's speaking as a human according to his human nature. But again, he's speaking as the one person, the person of the Son. And so Christ, while having two natures, is one person. And if we do say that Christ has more than one person, we embrace the heresy of, of Nestorianism. He's two natures united in one person. And I know that's a lot, but we have to get those things straight if we're going to understand this statement. Scripture has some complicated things that, that we as the church have to work through if we understand who our Savior is. But we might go further. Christ here is speaking of his knowledge, and, and can Christ really be said to know different things according to his two natures? Can Christ know differently as God and human? 
Yes, and this shows us just how deeply our Savior's humanity goes. He really and truly is fully human. And so there is at least one more heresy we have to be wary of, and this is the heresy of Apollinarianism. This says that Christ only took upon himself a human body, but he didn't take upon himself a human soul. When God the Son became incarnate, yes, he took upon himself a human body, but his body was animated, it was controlled, not by a human soul, but only by the divine nature. And what that means for our purposes is that Christ would not be fully human. He moves and eats and sleeps and does bodily things as a human, but he has no human soul. He doesn't know or love as a human. But if Christ has not assumed a human soul, he cannot heal and save humans, humans like us. If Christ is not fully human, then the whole mission of salvation has been compromised and ruined. Our Savior really is fully human, both body and soul, like us. Think about this line from the Apostles' Creed, something we recite every week. It tells us Christ descended into hell, or this might be better rendered in English, he descended to the dead, to the place of the righteous dead, what one parable calls Abraham's bosom. And we see the, the widespread acceptance and addition of this line by the church when the church is combating the heresy of Apollinarianism. The church wanted to stress that while Christ's body laid in the tomb, Christ's human soul descended to the place of the dead. When we recite this line of the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Christ has a human soul. He knows and loves as a human because the Christian tradition tells us that what the human soul does is know and love. The soul is the seed of the human intellect by which we know. The soul is the seed of the human will by which we love. And so when Christ says he knows not the day or the hour, he's assuring us that he has a human soul that he knows with a human intellect. He is assuring us, his disciples and his church, I am fully, fully human. And later in Matthew's gospel, Christ assures us that he has a human will as part of his human soul. Christ will pray to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 26. He says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christ's soul, his human soul is sad and sorrowful even to death. And he seeks to submit his human will to his divine will. And this is the divine will that he shares with the Father according to his divinity. Christ is speaking according to the form of a servant as a human. As the one person of the Son, he's submitting his human nature to his divine nature. And this is an obedience that will lead him to the cross. And what that means is according to Christ's human intellect... This is amazing. It has not been given to him to know the day or the hour of his return. But this is a dynamic that we see throughout the life of Christ. For instance, yes, God the Son dies, but he dies according to his human nature, not according to his divinity. According to his divine nature, 
He cannot die. He is life itself, being itself. Yes, God the Son does not know the day or the hour, but he lacks this knowledge according to his human nature. According to his divine nature, he knows all things, and in fact, in eternity, he has decreed all things that will happen in history. Christ has two natures, divine and human, and united in one person. And what that means, church, is wonder. We should never cease to wonder at Christ. Christ, our Savior, is fully God and fully, fully, absolutely human. This is an amazing truth, and this is the truth that Christ is assuring us of in this passage. The thrust of today's passage overall is that we would wait with eager expectation for the return of Christ. And Christ in humanity, his humanity like us, he doesn't know the day or hour of his return. And what that means is that Christ like us also waits eagerly for his return to be with his people Christ, like us, prays for his return. Christ, like us, in his humanity, prays as one who does not yet know the day or the hour. Christ, like us, is one who petitions to the Father to have this day come quickly because he longs to be with his people. This is the truth that Christ seeks us to know as we read the rest of today's passage. Christ, like us, longs for his glorious return, and Christ, like us, in his humanity, does not yet know when that blessed day will come. And exhorting us to eagerly await and prepare and pray for his glorious return, Christ asks us to do precisely what he is doing in his humanity. This is the wonder of our Savior who is both God and human. And I know that's a lot. But if this is who Christ is, then this is what we as the church need to understand and worship and adore. We serve a truly human Savior. He has taken on our nature fully and completely. And we have to get that straight before we move on to the next parts of our passage. We have to be a people that wonder. And when we're a people that wonder, we can be a people that wait. And that brings us to our second point, waiting. What does Jesus tell us about the day of his return? He tells us, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus compares the time of his coming to that of the flood. The people then were carrying on as normal, and yet quite suddenly the flood came upon them, and absolutely everything changed. The people were not looking to God. They were not looking to God to act. They were not looking to God to arrange and to order the human life. Yes, they were looking to good things, very good things. But the lesser goods of food and drink and marriage and the regular rhythms of life. And this is all that they were looking to. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we, like Noah's contemporaries, doing the same? And if we're not looking to God, what is it that we're looking to? What is life ultimately about? Well, let me borrow an example I've, I've heard before. But, but if I said to you, hey, let's, let's meet this week. Then the first question you would ask is, well, what, why? What do you want to meet about? 
And this would be a good question. But there's a much, much bigger question. The question of why am I doing what I'm doing? And I mean everything that I'm doing. Why am I eating and drinking and marrying and working and studying and saving and vacationing and all the other stuff that I do? What's the point of any and all of this stuff? We'd all ask the point of a one-hour meeting, but we so often ignore the point of our whole life. We think the question, why are we meeting, is prudent. But we think the question, why are we living, well, that's pretentious. The philosopher R.J. Snell is helpful here. He, he draws our attention to the, the vice that the Christian tradition has long called acedia or sloth. And when we hear the term sloth, we may only think of, of laziness. But it's just as common that sloth plays out as a kind of nonstop frenetic activity, something we see often in our modern culture. It's an activity that ceases, that stops, that doesn't think about asking the why of what we're doing. Snell points out that much of modern life, it, it just sort of takes the form of being told to walk one mile, and then another mile, and then another mile. We're not told where we're going, we're just sort of told to go. And we see everybody else walking, so we, we do our best to keep up and, and keep in pace. But we have no idea of where we're actually going. For instance, I, I read these, these, these words, this was from a a wealthy finance worker in Manhattan, he was interviewed on the, uh, for, the, for the BBC website. In reflecting on how much money he makes and, and how much money would be enough, he says the following. I understand that relative to the whole country, I'm obviously part of the upper crust in terms of income. I appreciate that I'm privileged. But at the same time, I can't ever imagine not wanting to make more than what I'm getting. When I hang out with people I went to high school with who, who generally work in jobs that pay less than mine, I, I definitely feel better about my salary. But then, as soon as I'm back to work or hanging out with people who I work with, that changes. What does this guy want? Well, he wants to make more money. How much more? He wants to make more money than whoever he happens to be with at the time. And he'll keep working and working and working and seeking more and seeking more and seeking more and it will never, ever, ever, ever feel like enough. And then one day, one of two things will happen. Either he will die or Christ will return. And suddenly he will find himself, if he stays on this course, just as unprepared as were the people in Noah's time. And perhaps you hear this and you think, well, well all you need is enough. And that's absolutely right. But enough for what? If I say I have enough gas, then, then that means I have enough gas to get to some particular location. If I tell you I have enough gas, and I mean I'm going coast to coast, that, that's not true. If, if, if I'm going from one coast to another coast, if I'm taking a cross-country trip, well, I don't have enough gas, and I'm going to have to stop a number of times at different gas stations along the way. I can't answer the question, do I have enough gas, unless I know where it is that I'm actually going to. And to have enough money, I need to ask myself, okay, uh, enough for what? Enough for what destination? Enough for what location? Enough for what end? Enough for what kind of life? If life is just about going and going and going and marching and marching and marching and comparing ourselves to everyone else, making sure we have more money or more status, 
more accomplishments, more unforgettable experiences, more romances, then you will never, ever have enough. If I can't confidently say what life is for, then how can I ever speak of having enough of any particular thing for this life? Without life being directed at something, we will all be like this man. We'll keep running with no destination in mind. We'll find our schedules filled to the brim. And yet, despite this nonstop frenetic activity, we don't know why we're doing anything that we're actually doing. We can find our schedules full, but our souls absolutely empty. And again, this is a form of sloth. It's frenetic activity. It's mere busyness. It's not directed towards any ultimate purpose for life. You're not swimming anywhere. You're just sort of treading water in the existential ocean of life. And like the people in Noah's time during the flood, you cannot tread water forever. And we can say more here. Sloth or acedia can go even deeper than ignoring the question of the why of life. It can also be a rejection of the ultimate why of life. And we see this in another part of today's passage. Jesus tells us that we must be like the wise servant who eagerly awaits and prepares for his master's return. And this is in contrast to the wicked servant, servant who says to himself, quote, My master is delayed. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. What does this servant really want to do? Does he want to serve his master? No. We see this because when the master is away, he finally does what it is he always wanted to do. He places himself above the other servants. He beats the other servants and he eats and drinks with gluttons and drunkards. And this is the true desire of his heart. If it wasn't, he would not do this while his master was away. His master's absence does not cause him to long for his master's return. No, this absence is finally a chance to indulge in every desire he wanted to perform. He seeks a life without his master, a life without God. To him, his master or God is, is only the killjoy who keeps him from enjoying life, not the joy of life itself. And this, too, is sloth. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, he identifies sloth as sadness at the divine good. Sadness at the divine good. Our fullest and truest and ultimate happiness and joy is found only in communion with God, in deep, loving fellowship with our master. But when we are in a state of sloth, God does not move our hearts. In fact, we don't even want him. We hate the one thing that alone can give us joy. We are like servants who revel in the absence of the master. As R.J. Snell writes, sloth is sadness and sorrow about our own happiness. Sloth is sadness and sorrow about our own happiness. This is a terrifying truth, that we can hate and reject the one thing that can bring us true joy. Sloth is a deep existential sadness. We reject the one great good that alone can give us the joy that we cannot help but seek. And so we give ourselves to a million different things that cannot do what we want them to do. We despise our ultimate good. 
We despise the return of our master. We cringe at his second coming. We gag at our only true happiness. Both Noah's contemporaries and the wicked servants, they are in a state of sloth. Noah's contemporaries, they ignore and disregard the ultimate why of their life. The wicked servant, he rejects and detests God as the ultimate why of his life. The first path is a distraction that leads to despair. The second path is a detesting that leads to despair. Either way, life becomes a fool's errand. We seek a joy that we will never find in the things that we seek it in. And this, as Christ tells us, will end in judgment with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's work and work and work. Let's travel and travel and travel. Let's exercise and exercise and exercise. Let's date and date and date. Let's make sure that we don't miss out on anything. Let's give ourselves to every bit of frenetic activity we can. Because who knows where we might find that happiness, that joy. But this is really a deep, deep sadness. It's like this. It's like if we lost our keys during a really bad snowstorm in the front yard and you know, we, we know that's the one place that we can find our keys, but it, it's really comfortable inside the house. It's, it's warm and it's temperature controlled. So, you know what? I know I'm not going to find my keys here, but, but I'm just going to keep looking here because it makes the search so much more comfortable. And you know what? If, if, if I'm busy, well, then it looks like I'm getting something done. This is really no different than seeking our ultimate why in eating and drinking and marriage or in any other very good part of human life that is not God himself. And yet, the why, as Christ tells us, will arrive suddenly. While we are busy not looking for God, God will come suddenly upon us. Christ compares his sudden return to the visit of a thief in the night. It's unknown, it's unexpected. And so Christ tells us, Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is what the Christian is called to wait for, and to do so with rapt attention and with eager expectation. In fact, the very best way not to be distracted in life is to meditate each and every day on the actual return of Christ. We tend best to an apple tree when we focus on the fully ripened apples. And we tend best to this life when we think of its consummation in Christ's return. Christ's return, that is our full communion with God and fellowship with the people of God in a fully restored creation, this is what life is for. This is the why behind everything that we do. And this is what Christ will bring with him when he returns. This is not something to ignore, but to adore. This is not something to detest, but something to desire. And any other response is sloth. And that's why, that's why Christ calls us to an active waiting. Christ gives us a picture of two men who are working in the field. One is taken and the other is left. And to speak here of being taken probably refers to being gathered immediately to Christ and the restored creation. The man gathered to Christ, he's doing his daily work. He's working his good and honorable and God-glorifying vocation. And through it all, he is undistracted and he is ready. He's a good worker, but he doesn't expect his work or the fruit of his work to be the ultimate why 
of his life, and so the worker is ready. This is what his life is for. All of it was aiming at the moment of Christ's return, even if it will come suddenly and unexpected. The worker waits as one who is ready, and every day he is more ready. And so we ask, what is the way that we are meant to wait for Christ? Well, we are meant to live a life that grows daily our love and our longing and adoration for Christ. If we don't desire Christ now, then we won't desire Christ's return. If we don't desire Christ now, then we will not enjoy the communion with him that he offers in the resurrection. We must learn to enjoy Christ now. This is how we wait. And as the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us, this is what the ultimate why of your life is, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And yes, this means worshiping in the church service. This means scripture and prayer. This means meditating upon the glory of Christ. This means discipleship and fellowship. This means service to our neighbor, loving our neighbor as ourself through our vocations and through our resources. And this also means that life is actually much, much simpler than we might think. Rather than a kind of frenetic activity that never ends, your charge is simply this, to love and desire God more. To love and desire God more. Life really is that simple. If each day you love Christ more than you did the day before, if you long more for his return than you did the day before, then you have waited well. No matter what else you have accomplished, you have lived that day well. If you go to a job interview and you completely blow it, but at the end of the day, if you desire God more than you have done well, you've waited rightly, you are preparing yourself if you fail to make a dent in your to-do list. But at the end of that day, you long more deeply for Christ's return. You have done well. And toward that end, to set our hearts on fire for Christ, we, the church, must learn to see him as our true bridegroom, which brings us to our third and final point, wedding. In the final section of today's passage, Jesus gives us a parable that lays out his return in terms of a wedding celebration. Christ is the bridegroom and we, the church, are his bride. It's a parable of, of ten virgins, of, of ten maidens who wait for the bridegroom. And in this parable, these multiple maidens, they, they might represent, they might be the, the, the friends of the bride, they're celebrating with the bride, or they may collectively represent the church. Either way, we must remember that it's a parable, and also that this parable is not endorsing polygamy in any way, one man having multiple wives. The book of Genesis, it condemns polygamy descriptively. It shows us in narrative fashion the problems that happen in a family when polygamy is there. And in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 17, the Bible condemns polygamy prescriptively. It forbids the taking of multiple wives. Again, this is a parable. And in this parable, the bridegroom comes later than the maidens expect, and five of them run out of oil for their lamp. They run to get more, but they miss the bridegroom's arrival, and they are shut out of the celebration. And in biblical imagery, the biblical imagery that Christ is pulling on here, 
Oil, and especially anointing with oil, is an image for the Spirit and the Spirit's anointing. And this Spirit imagery is apt here because it is the Spirit who unites us to Christ, our true Bridegroom. The Spirit produces the faith in us that binds us to Christ, our Savior. And this parable reminds us that, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith, faith that saves, is not alone. True saving faith, faith from the oil that is the Holy Spirit, it will display itself in the Christian life. The good works of the Christian are not the cause, but they're the effect of salvation. First, we are reconciled, we are saved, we are united to Christ, and then from that reality, our good works follow. And this is the opposite order of any and all other religion. Again, everything in this parable flows from how the maidens start their journey. From the very beginning, everything flows from that. Either they come with enough oil or not. Either they come filled with the Spirit or not. Everything depends on how the journey began. And if we are truly filled with the Spirit, if we truly have saving faith in Christ, it cannot help but burn all of our lives, even if we feel it, even if we see it flickering at times. But if this is not the case, we will find that our lamps will one day cease to shine. Only the oil of the Spirit can sustain us through the long and often difficult waiting of this present life. And this parable also reminds us that each person must stand before Christ. Just like the maidens, we cannot borrow oil from another. Do we have the oil of the Spirit or not? And this is the question that we must all ask ourselves personally. With that, we should not be surprised that Christ describes his return as waiting for a wedding celebration. St. Augustine is, is helpful here. He reminds us that the marriage of Christ and his church, we find it prophesied all the way at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. In the Genesis, Genesis account, when Adam sleeps, God takes a rib from his side and God crafts for him his wife. And when Adam sees, sees Eve, he exclaims, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam sees Eve. He loves her. He has given of himself so that she could be. And Augustine tells us that Adam is a type of Christ. Christ too slept. But he did not sleep upon the soft garden ground of Eden, but nailed to the rough wood of the cross. He did not sleep Adam's sweet sleep of rest, but the painful sleep of death. And what is it that comes from Christ's side? It's not a rib. But hanging dead upon the cross, Christ is stabbed, and from his side flows out both blood and water. But can blood and water a bride make? Yes, because this blood and this water are the life of his bride, the church. In the blood of Christ, we are forgiven, covering ourselves with his sacrificial death on our behalf. Christ willingly dies for us. He takes the punishment that we deserve so that we can receive life from him, that we can be his bride, that we can be his Eve, And the water of Christ's death 
we are washed and we are purified. And this water and this blood, these are the signs and seals of God's covenant of salvation with us. It's Christ's blood that we drink in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's Christ's water in which we are washed and anointed with in the sacrament of baptism. Christ has slept the sleep of death and poured out from his side what alone can give life to his church, to his bride, to his Eve. And so let us hear the resurrected Christ say to us as he, he waits eagerly to come back to his bride, his church, his people, Christ in his humanity that he shares with us. He says to us, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, the church, shall be called my bride because she was taken out of me, her true and perfect bridegroom. This is how Christ looks at us. This is how Christ loves us and longs for us. And only when we know that God in Christ looks upon us in this way will the hardness of our hearts melt. Christ According to his humanity, like us, he knows not the day or the hour of his return. And he, like us, waits for it eagerly. This is what we wait for. This is what our life is for. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and receive your bride, the church, and may our lamps burn brightly until that day. Amen. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that Christ, your Son, would come quickly, that we might know that consummation, that beautiful consummation of history that you promise. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have given to us. Give us glad and grateful hearts. Help us to trust ever more deeply in the many promises that you and your love have given to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.